Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. This second chapter into the third chapter of Mark relates a series of short stories from the life of Jesus that show um, a rise of opposition from his adversaries, which turned out to be the religious sector of the Jewish nation. And it's going to culminate in the third chapter, verse 6, with their plot to take his life. So that's where that begins. Why are we taking the time to study this in detail? Why are we going again through a gospel? Well, for a couple of reasons. Peter tells believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. Those of you who know the Lord, you're interested in, of course, in growing in the knowledge of Christ. And that spurs on the aspiration that Paul exemplified in Philippians 3 when he said that I may know him. Speaking about Jesus, this is what drove the Apostle Paul. He wanted to know Jesus Christ, and we get to know him through primarily through his word, and nothing better than looking at one of the biographies of him, the first one written, by the way, though it's not the first in order in the New Testament, but it is the first one written. I'm very convinced of that after reading the background on Mark. And so you can thank the Apostle Peter for much of this, because this is where these stories came from. Mark listened to Peter and later recounted these things. So I mean, just imagine Peter being present at many of these things, many of these events, and seeing this unfold. So we come now to verse 18 through 22. And as I thought about this, this is fairly advanced teaching in the Christian faith, what we're going to look at this morning. And those of you who are more newer to it, I think you'll still be able to follow along and understand it. Let me read verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him. Actually, the text says, and they came and said to him. And the they probably refers back to the Pharisees, the previous antecedent. So when you have a pronoun... In Greek, you're wondering, who, who's it referring to? It usually goes back to the person mentioned beforehand, which are the Pharisees. So these are probably the Pharisees or their disciples, which I didn't really know. Pharisees had disciples. Apparently, they mentored some of their younger Jewish uh, colleagues in their strict ways. So they're posing this question. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, who's the him? Jesus. 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from the new, the new from the old, and a worst tear is made. Now, these are some interesting analogies that Jesus is using here. The next one, verse 22. Now, he's making the same point. Well, he's changing the analogy. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for wet, uh, fresh wineskins. So there's our text this morning. So let's look. Verse 18, first of all, Jesus, he's questioned about the fact that his disciples don't fast. So when they're asking him about this, this is really directed at him. Your disciples, John's disciples fasted, that is John the Baptist, that's who that's talking about. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, and he was Jesus' great forerunner. He was sent as the last great prophet of the Old Testament to announce the coming of the Messiah. That was John's work, and as his work was completed, He pointed his followers away from himself and said, go follow him, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, but I must decrease, John told us. That's all over in the Gospel of John. So they're critical, really. This is leveled at Jesus because what his disciples did in their practice was a reflection of Jesus himself. They're his disciples. They're his followers. So... They embody his teaching. So if they're not fasting and they're lacking, in their view, they're lacking some piety, they're not so devoted to God because they don't fast. So indirectly they're saying that this is true of Jesus and himself. He's not as pious as you people think he is. His followers don't even fast. So that's what's driving this here. Let's remind ourselves again about the Pharisees. They're prominent in most of these conflicts and controversies and in the rise of opposition to Jesus. They are the holy ones, the the strict adherence to the law of Moses, the separated ones. These are some of the terms that were used of them. They were a party of laymen, actually, not professionals. But they paid more attention to the oral tradition of Moses' law. Remember, there is uh, that Jewish work called the Mishnah that dates way back to that time. 
that collected all of the oral interpretations of all the various rabbis, comments that were made, expositions that were made on the law of Moses, telling God's people, this is how you keep this law in this situation, in that situation, and so on. And so the the Old Testament, (laughs) there was only one fast that was commanded of God in the Old Testament. Only one. It was on the Day of Atonement. One day out of the year, God told his people to afflict yourselves and fast. This is in Leviticus 16. But the Pharisees, they were looking at the oral tradition that was imposed on the people of God. And so in the Mishnah, there were other occasions to fast, national crises, turmoil in one's life. And so the Pharisees, they went beyond the Old Testament. They fasted twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday was a fast day if you were a Pharisee. Remember the story, the parable that Jesus told? I referred to it last week in the, at the end, in the sermon from Luke 18. The two men that went up to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember how a Pharisee prayed with himself and said, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, like this man over here. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all that I possess. He tithed even, even the spices that were in their cupboards. This is the Pharisee. So he went beyond the law. He did more than God actually commanded. So he's very critical of the Lord Jesus Christ here, who doesn't fast at all. Of course, Jesus himself had a 40-day fast in the wilderness when he was tempted of the devil. So you can't say Jesus never fasted. He didn't know anything about fasting. Well, yes, he did. He went 40 days on a fast, but that was not his regular lifestyle and practice. Your disciples do not fast. It's interesting, so when you come into the New Testament, very little is said about fasting in the New Testament. It's never imposed on the church, on Christians. You're nowhere commanded to fast. Jesus didn't command us to fast. I know when the Sermon on the Mount is taught, we like to say that Jesus said, when you fast, you know, don't, don't mess up your hair and go unwashed so you look like you're suffering. You know, wash your face, comb your hair, don't, let, don't try to give it away that you're fasting. This is, so Jesus had some things to teach about the main practices of Judaism in the Sermon on the Mount, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Those are three of the main duties or practices in Judaism. And the Lord Jesus addressed each of them, and he talked about that, how a person is to fast. When they do it, do it like this. Don't give it away. Don't do it to be seen by man. He says the same thing about prayer. Don't pray in the public places, lifting up your voice real loud and blowing your horn before you give a, uh, an offering to let people know, hey, I'm giving some money this morning. Bing. Yeah. So those are, those are, that's what Jesus is dealing with. He's really 
addressing the Pharisees indirectly in those comments about fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. This is what they were guilty of. Other than that, there's, not a, there's no exposition of fasting in the New Testament. We have two examples in the book of Acts where the church fasted. They fasted with prayer in Acts 13, and that had to do with the calling of Paul and Barnabas to missionary service. Then a second time in Acts 14, there was prayer and fasting when they appointed leadership in those churches that Paul and Barnabas had established in Lystra, Derby, and over in Asia Minor on his first missionary journey. Other than that, there's nothing. So this, this is not a sermon to lay fasting on you after you just ate Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's not about fasting. This is the question, though, that prompted these amazing analogies of Jesus. And that's what I want to get into here. This is my second point. Verses 19 and 20, his analogy of the wedding feast. So remember what he's answering. He's answering the question, how come your disciples aren't fasting? So he goes on to say, can the wedding guests... Now, I want to tell you who this is referring to. The wedding guests in the analogy are Jesus' disciples. And the bridegroom is Jesus. So just keep that in mind as he lays out this first one. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? See this? In a... First century wedding in Palestine, the celebration went on for about a week. Not like we have it today of a reception that is over in a few hours. That's not how the Jewish people did it. They celebrated for several days. There was song and dance. There was abundance of food and wine. Remember they ran out of wine in John chapter 2? Very embarrassing situation for that couple. They ran out of wine early in their celebration. This is how a normal wedding was carried out. Lots of singing and dancing. So right off, the the wedding is a great celebration of joy and happiness. You don't fast at a wedding. It's inappropriate. It's kind of unthinkable that there would be fasting at a wedding. No, a wedding celebration is a time for feasting. Enjoying yourself, celebrating, joy and gladness here. Even the the rabbis joined in in the celebration. But Jesus says, see, as, as long as they have the bridegroom, as long as Jesus Christ is present with his people, there's everything to celebrate and to be joyful. They have him. This is like a wedding celebration. We have him in our midst. Ah, but he says, but the time will come. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom, notice this, is taken away. What an expression. As the wedding celebration concludes, it's not the bridegroom 
who leaves. It's the wedding guests. They disappear. But the language is such that the bridegroom is removed. There's something, there's a shocking detail in this analogy that Jesus is bringing out. The bridegroom is removed from the celebration. What? Where is he? What's happened to him? Well, what do you think he's talking about? He's talking about his coming death. He's coming, it's coming into the lives of his disciples that he's going to leave them. We went through the Gospel of John so long ago and went through the upper room discourse that's John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, several chapters in John's Gospel. This is what... This is a record of what Jesus told his disciples the night before his crucifixion. The night before. And it's all about him preparing them for the fact that he's going to leave them. And when they hear that, they begin to have sorrow. But he tells them, your sorrow is going to be turned to joy. And that is telling us that he's going to be raised from the dead, though he doesn't tell them right there that that's what's going to happen. But they're going to be overcome with sorrow and misery for those few days when they see him killed in the manner in which he was killed, a public execution, horrific in every way, lying in the grave, but then he's going to be resurrected. So he says, your, your sorrow will be turned to joy. It's, it's something, it, he put it like that to them. John sixteen twenty, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Yes. The religious establishment was glad when Jesus was finally dead. But Jesus said, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So he's going to be taken away from them. And then he says, they will fast in that day. That will be an occasion. Because they're going to be overcome with sorrow and mourning. So you associate fasting actually with sorrow. With mourning. Not joy. When you're fasting, you're bothered about something. You're troubled about something that you want to bring before God. But it's, a, it's, it's optional. It's not being laid on you. If you want to know the true manner of fasting, there's a whole chapter in the Bible that addresses how to fast. A fast that, is a, that God will be pleased with. It's in Isaiah chapter 58. So that's, that could be a reference. But again, it's in the Old Testament, not in the New It's optional. God's people are not obligated to do this. But this tells me something right off about the nature of our faith. The Christianity is characterized primarily by joy, not by sadness, not by depression, not by sorrow. And here's why. Because the early Christians, and we see it in the book of Acts, and I'm going to argue from the whole New Testament, tells us this. 
that although Jesus is not here physically present anymore, I've never seen the Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward to seeing him whom having not seen, we love. And Jesus said, blessed are those that, be- that believe yet have not seen, have not seen the wounds in his hand. But someday we're going to see that. What a, an amazing experience. I mean, it's incalculable in the joy and excitement that God's people will have when they lay eyes on the Son of God for the first time, the glorified Christ. But in the meantime, yet the church, without his physical presence, was still full of joy. Look at them in the book of Acts, because they had the resurrection. It says they ate their food with gladness and joy, and they were praising God daily in the temple and so on. This is all in Acts chapter 2. You don't see the church smitten with sorrow and suffering, or the sorrow and sadness and mourning in the book of Acts. Anything but. It's the exact opposite. That's because they still had Christ's presence with them. That's the Holy Spirit came to take Jesus' place. And this is why Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send the other comforter, another one just like myself, who will come and comfort you. I will not leave you, what did he say? As orphans, but I will come to you. Notice that language. That's John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How's he going to come? Well, he came in the resurrection a few days later. But I think primarily he means after he ascends to heaven and then sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came in his place to mediate his presence to the church and to all believers so that the church becomes the temple of the living God. We are now the place where God dwells, dwelling in the hearts of his people. And so early Christians, they weren't um, living in sadness or sorrow. You know, we, we're sad when we sin, of course, and there's repentance, but that does, that's not the general tenor of our life as believers. That doesn't mark us. If it does, if a Christian's constantly sad and depressed, something is out of balance. They need to see the truth in another way. So Jesus said this in his final commission to the church to make disciples of all nations. Do that by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. I am with you. He said this to the apostles and the other Christians who may have been gathered with them before he left this world. I am with you until the end of the world. So that's... Christ is with us. Then you have the beautiful promise in Hebrews 13, where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Those are double negatives in the original. I will no, never leave you. This is the strongest possible way to 
make a negative statement in the language of the New Testament. You put two negatives together. I will no, never leave you. No, never forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. This is his promise to the church. And then think of the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. His death is imminent. His final letter to Timothy, his young colleague in the ministry that he that was saved under his ministry, whom he mentored and trained, he said to Timothy, sad words here, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. 2 Timothy 4.17. So, this is the way it is for us now. 2,000 years have gone by. The Lord Jesus Christ is still with his people. He's still with the church. He has not abandoned us. And so we should live our lives under the sense that we are in his presence. We cannot leave his presence. He will never leave us, and thus we will never be able to leave him. This is a reason to be full of joy and happiness. We have the bridegroom. And then I want to bring out this, because this is interesting. This imagery of a wedding, this actually comes out of the Old Testament, where Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, his name Yahweh, Yahweh says that he is the husband of Israel. In Hosea chapter 2, In that day, declared the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. The Lord Jesus Christ takes that analogy of God being married to his people, and he transfers it to his own ministry, and now he declares that he's the bridegroom of God's people. Jesus is presuming to take on something that belongs only to God and applying it to himself. So here's another indication in the New Testament of who Jesus Christ is. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the God of the Old Testament here among us as a man. Now, note thirdly, the second analogy in verses 21 to 22, and this is, some, this is different, and it's making a different point. Jesus' analogy of the garment and the wineskins. The garment and the wineskins. Now, essentially what he's saying, and these are both making the same point, actually. You don't take a patch of new cloth and you don't put it on an old garment that has a hole in it. Otherwise, when that garment goes through the wash again, that new cloth is going to shrink over the hole that it's covering and it's going to pull away from the old garment, which the old garment, it doesn't shrink anymore. It's already gone through the shrinking process, so it's stable. But that new piece of cloth 
being placed on there, it shrinks, tears, and makes the rip worse. Okay, that's the first one. Then he says, you don't take new wine. Notice it's new. A new patch, a new, and new wine. New wine is probably Tom, meaning it's not fully fermented yet. So he says, you don't take new wine and put it in an old, brittle, leather wineskin. You don't do that, because that new wine is going to go through a fermenting process. It's going to expand, and that wineskin, it's old, it's brittle, it's years in age, is going to tear, and you're going to lose the wineskin, and you're going to be any good, and all the wine, you're going to lose it all. Rather, a new patch goes with a new garment, and a new... Wine with new wineskins. Now, what is, what is Jesus teaching? Well, here, here's the, the basic principle is that the, the new is not compatible with the old. This is, this is the basic thing we want to note. The new is not compatible with the old. Now, what is the new and what is the old? That's the, what is he referring to here? Well, I I believe the new is Jesus and his teaching. The old is Judaism. It's, It's the old system. And what he's telling us is that what he brought into the world, what he represented, is not simply patchwork on the old system. He didn't come to, like, make an addition or a supplement to Judaism. He wasn't adding something to the old system. What he brought, it, you can't integrate it into the old system. It doesn't go with it at all. And we're going to see it. They don't go together. No, what he brought... And I'll say the old system as represented by the Pharisees and the scribes and so on, because they pretty much embodied it. No, what he brought was entirely new. He brought new wine, and it requires new wineskins. Simple as that. He brought new cloth, new patch, requires a different garment, a new garment. You can't put these two together. You can't marry... Christianity and Judaism. Think of what the implication of this is. If this is the correct interpretation, and I believe it is, that this is what he's telling us. Now, the the new requires new wineskins, new cloth. Uh, He's not telling us that the old is evil. I want to make that point. He's not saying the old system is evil. But it's obsolete. It's worn out. It's old. And as it says in the book of Hebrews concerning what is one of the new things, the most prominent new thing in the New Testament, look up the word new in your concordance, Strong's or Young's. Look up the word new, trace it through the New Testament, and see what, what occurs the most times as being new. It's the new covenant. The new covenant. 
And the book of Hebrews says of the new covenant, and speaking of the new covenant, he says, it makes the first one, what? Obsolete. Hebrews 8.13. So it's the passing away of the old system. Jesus didn't come to put a, a piece of patch on it. He's not perpetuating Judaism in his teaching. He's inaugurating something entirely new. Let me mention what some of those new things are. So the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, it was the inauguration of the new. Remember what it says in the end of the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 21? It's a a capstone on all the new. I'll I'll tell you what it says in a minute after going through what the new things are. So we have the new covenant. That is the most regularly new thing in the New Testament that is spoken of in contrast to the old. The old is, is Moses. The old is Moses. The new covenant is that covenant that he brought into reality for the church by his death. This is, this is my blood of the new covenant. He ratified it. He put it into effect. He made it valid and put it in force when he died on the cross. And when we celebrate the Lord's table, we're demonstrating that to each other. The new covenant. Now, what's so special about the new covenant? Well, in the New Covenant, God gives the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a new spirit and a new heart. What do we need more than anything else as sinners before God? We need a new heart. We have a heart of stone, and we need a heart of flesh. And Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 18, and Ezekiel 36, the Old Testament, talks about a new spirit, a new heart God is going to do this for his people in the new covenant. It's him making the change in us so that we have a heart to obey him. He doesn't wait for us to try to work up some motive in ourselves to do the right thing in life. No, he comes to our rescue. He gives us what we need. He gives us precisely what we need so that we can honor him and live in obedience to him. That also, he talks about the new man. He talks about a new commandment. What's the new commandment? What's the 11th commandment in the Bible? Love one another as I have loved you. New commandment. All the new things. And in the, when you come to the book of Revelation, it's the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, a new song, a new name. All these new things. Because Revelation 21.5, God says, Behold, I am making all things new. There it is. Revelation 21.5. So as I draw this to a close, I did note a few things. That Jesus, his coming into the world changed everything. His coming changed everything. (laughs) He didn't come to patch up the old system. He came to inaugurate something entirely new. Now take it as it applies to the church, because this is where a new thing really has taken place, represented here in this body of people. The old system, it was a nation. It was a national thing. God chose a nation of people. It's 
Now, in a certain sense, he, he still has a plan for them. Paul argues in Romans 11 that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The Jewish people still have a place in God's plan, but it is to put them in the church. That's his plan, to bring them to Jesus, where they accept him as their Messiah, and they will be added to the church. The new thing is the church. The New Testament church is different than the Old Testament church or congregation, which was a national thing. This is, this is entirely new now. The church. And Paul says that God has made, this is a new, unique thing about the church that Paul reveals. It's now going to be composed, God's people are going to be composed of both Jew and Gentile. Paul said that middle wall of partition between the two. And now we're seeing in our culture the incredible wall that is between Jew and Gentile. There's still an amazing wall of prejudice. I'll use the word since everybody's using it. Racism against the Jewish people. Really divided. Jesus Christ came to tear down that wall and bring together those two groups and make them one new man. He actually uses that language, a new man, one new man. Ephesians 2.15. This is the New Testament church. You never think of the Old Testament people of God like that. One new man? Well, that's the church. And the church is... That temple now, no longer a temple of stone and mortar. Probably there was no mortar in the old temple. The blocks of stone were sat on top of one another. They were so heavy you didn't need to put cement in between them. But stones, temple of stone, is now replaced by people. People compose the temple now. No longer a physical temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So the fact that you have the destruction of the temple, that shows that there's a change that took place in God's plan for his people. He's wiping out the old system. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died, and then the temple is swept off of the temple mount and destroyed by the Romans. So there's the old system. Jesus, now his temple are people. People compose the temple. God indwells his people. The redeemed of the Lord of all ages compose this temple. So that's one thing that strikes me about this, how Jesus Christ changed everything. Now, something else, what, what are we to make of those attempts that people have made and groups, churches, religions of type who try to put new wine into old wineskins. What are we to make of that? That is, taking Christianity, taking all the new that Jesus inaugurated and somehow trying to blend it, mix it, incorporate it into the old system. Really? Did they do that? Well, isn't this what the Judaizers did? 
right off the bat, the Judaizers, who were Christians of sort, saying, yes, you can believe in Jesus and all of that, but you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow Moses to be saved. They weren't ready to break with the old system that is now obsolete, the old covenant. They were still hanging on to Moses and trying to blend it with Jesus, mix it with Jesus. Jesus said you can't do it. Can't put new wine into old wineskins. You know, some of the cults have done this. I call them non-Christian cults. That's what Walter Martin called them. They claim to be Christians, but it's a cult. It's a group of people following one person's interpretation of the Bible. That's the hallmark of a cult. It's led usually by one person and their view of the Bible. And they have claims of being exclusive. They're the only ones. They're the only true church. They're the only true followers of Jesus. Only they're going to be saved, and so on. Hallmark of a cult. Well, some of the cults, they try to put new wine into old wineskins. you got to worship on Saturday. Saturday's the Sabbath. Huh. That's, that's the old system. That's the old system. Or i got to follow the dietary laws in the in Moses. You can't eat pork. You can't eat certain kinds of animals. They're trying to follow the dietary laws. Again, that's the, that's the old obsolete system. So they're trying to put Christianity and still mix it. So you could probably think of other examples of that. Here's, a, here's an interesting application of it. And I hope this isn't offensive to anyone, but if you believe in the millennial reign of Christ, that he's going to reign for a thousand years in the city of Jerusalem, the general belief, that belief of the millennium, is usually accompanied with the view that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and that the whole temple sacrificial system will be reinstituted while Jesus is reigning in Jerusalem. This, this, is, this is putting new wine into old wineskins to view that. We're not going to go back to sacrificing animals. Now, I think there may be an attempt of the Jewish people to rebuild their temple. I... I actually think they're going to try to do that. It's my view. It would not surprise me at all if they were to begin at some point, maybe in our lifetime, of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and doing the sacrificial system again because there are a couple of schools in Jerusalem where they are training Jewish men, young Jewish men, to be priests. And they have reconstructed the implements in the book of Exodus that were to be used in God's worship. This is how serious they are about it. That they want a temple and they want the priesthood and they want animal sacrifices again. But to blend that with Jesus reigning at the same time and that somehow this is a part of the Christian message now. 
This is what I find is a problem. So I want to make clear distinction between what is Judaism, the old system, and Christianity, which is entirely new. Now let me bring it home to each and every one of us in a personal way and with this thought that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't interested in patching up our old life. He didn't come into this world to just sort of fix us with a new practice in our life and just kind of leaving us as we were, but add this to your life and everything will be great. This is not what he came to do. (laughs) He came to make us new creatures, actually. And Paul uses that language. He says, if any man be in Christ, being in Christ means in this very close, intimate relationship with him, where he is in us and we are in him. The Holy Spirit makes that connection between us and Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all all things become new. This is this is how, this is he came to make us new creatures. New goals, new desires, new aspirations, new lifestyle, new worldview, new family life, new relationships with our spouses and our children. I mean, it's new all the way down the road. He came to change everything in our life. So again, he didn't come to do little patchwork. He came to really make us over again by the Holy Spirit. And he does that. This is what being born again is all about. Being regenerated by the Holy Spirit begins that work of renewal. May the Lord do that for each and every one of us for his great namesake. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.